welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Unfit podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at Unfit. And we've got a fascinating discussion for you guys today. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at some of the challenges of public finance management and some of the solutions uh, that people are developing to address that. So to discuss that with me today, uh, I'm joined by Janine Manns, uh, a senior governance advisor at the USAID Center for Democracy, Human Rights and Governance. And Lisa Fleischer, a health science specialist in the Office of HIV AIDS in USAID's Bureau for Global Health. Uh, I'm also joined by Mark McDonald, who's the lead partner for global public finance management at EY. So thank you all for joining me. Um, Janine, just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about USAID and the work that you in particular uh, do there? That'd be yeah, I'm happy to. And, and maybe to set the stage a little bit, I can start by talking through a little bit about how USAID engages um, issues of public financial management. And, and we're interested in it for a number of reasons, or we approach it from a number of different angles. Um, the first thing I'd highlight is that we see PFM as a, a system that is a critical governance system in our partner countries um, and, and critical to the governance environment um, as a whole. So we seek to build the efficiency, the effectiveness, the integrity of PFM systems as a goal in and of itself. The second thing I'd highlight here is that we see PFM systems as a means of delivering development outcomes in the countries where we work in our partner um, countries. Because we, the value in improving PFM systems to improve sectoral service delivery outcomes. And the third item I'd highlight here is, is really a combination of those first two considerations. Um, so there are countries where we also have programming that runs through government systems. And in these cases, PFM system strengthening really takes on a particular importance um, because it's a means to safeguard U.S. taxpayer resources. Uh, so with, with that groundwork laid, um, you know, I might highlight a couple of the challenges that we see to making progress in this area. Um, so, so if we think about these three sort of realms or aspects, um, when we, we're talking about advancing PFM as a governance system, we often see gaps between, you know, PFM laws, regulations, and guidelines and what they require and what implementation is in practice. I think a lot of the legal framework in, in our partner countries is now in place and, and quite strong, um, but the implementation side tends to be much weaker. Um, and implementation of digital systems here can go a long way to, to improve this by reducing individual discretion, um, reducing opportunities to deviate from, from those procedures. But it's imperfect, right? Um, particularly when oversight and accountability functions within the PFM system um, are weak. So about the second aspect, um, about PFM as a means to facilitate better, more efficient, inclusive service delivery. Actually, I'm going to hand off to my colleague, Lisa, um, who's going to be able to speak to this from a health sector perspective. So over to you, Lisa. Janine, thanks so much. Um, you know, in the health sector, we often face operational challenges or bottlenecks that stem from kind of this classic tension between PFM systems needing rigidity and control and health sector actors wanting to maximize flexibility and resource allocation to make sure that their services are as responsive as possible to population health needs. Um, and so a, a recent and well-known example of this tension um, played out in the COVID-19 crisis. And colleagues of ours at the World Health Organization did a quick review 
of the allocation and use of public funds during COVID-19 in 183 countries and noted that reallocating funds for COVID-19 prevention, testing, and treatment was much more cumbersome in countries with rigid line item budgets, um, among other findings. And so a key takeaway from their work is that COVID-19 actually created an opportunity for countries to really dive into PFM reform um, and address some of these operational challenges that can result from this classic PFM divide of, of control versus flexibility. That's a really fascinating point. I think uh, that that tension of you know rigidity and 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 control versus flexibly allocating resources uh, is probably quite a quite a common problem. Mark, I wonder if you can speak to that. You've obviously got uh, a different perspective, looking across a lot of different institutions uh, that might face these sorts of challenges. Are the sorts of problems that that Lisa and Janine are outlining things that uh, that a lot of institutions struggle with? Oh, I think so very much. And it, 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 it exists very clearly at the, you know, at the international level, uh, and certainly in the execution of, of development and aid. But it act, but it also exists within nation states. And the reason, as Lisa has just said, is that you've got this kind of counterintuitive relationship between control and rigidity from a budget management perspective versus the flexibility that you actually want the further you get away from that central budget authority and you get into the program design and the program execution and ultimately into the into the direct service delivery realm. And what we're trying to do uh, is bridge those um, counter intuitions and trying to use technology to try and get ourselves there because the control and the rigidity sometimes is reflected in the very design of the information management systems that 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 underpin and you know what we're finding is because it's not just within a public sector context but many many private sector contexts as well there has been this drive to innovation in the way that we actually manage and exchange inf- information and what we're seeing is that there are some uh, new technologies that allow us to have kind of the best of both worlds. We can maintain control, transparency, oversight, but at the same time enable flexibility. Uh, and in so doing, we actually achieve a better, more efficient allocation of public resources and ultimately a more efficient and effective delivery of services and realization of the associated impact. Mm, yeah, I think that that speaks a little to what uh, Janine was saying about, you know, the quality, the integrity of PFM systems, not just as a means of making sure the money goes where it should, but to actually just improve the delivery outcomes themselves and uh, and the development, uh, you know, achieving development goals through that as well. Um, yeah, really interesting point. So I want to talk a little bit about when we're talking about development outcomes, what you what frameworks you have in place uh, to assess uh, the impact of, of the funds that you're dispersing. I can come in there um, and, and, and get us started on that conversation. So, you know, when when USAID um, uses its disbursements from the U.S. Congress for global health programming at the country level, 
um, that, those appropriations are earmarked for specific program areas such as HIV AIDS or maternal and child health. And it's very important because each program area has very specific indicators against which we measure impact and then report that impact or those findings back to Congress. And of course, custom indicators are added to those core indicators for each specific country program to make sure that we're comprehensively monitoring and evaluating the outcomes and impact of our work. Um, and then we, of course, have complementary evaluations, which include impact evaluations, um, which try to make a robust estimate of how our programming is leading to results, really in terms of health outcomes. Um, but keeping in mind, of course, the challenges with evaluating causality in the environments in which we work. And I might pick up on on some of those really useful points that Lisa makes um, when she's describing the systems that USAID has where where we link um, our resources to results. Um, and, and also note that we're engaging with a lot of our partner countries to build their own systems and capacities in this area. Um, and through this work, we've, we've seen that there's often real challenges um, to assess the impact of government spending in our partner countries. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. One has to do with connecting budgetary resources with results. So in a lot of countries, sectoral outcomes are the result of, of many different things, right? There are often multiple government agencies that are working on a single issue that contribute to that result. Households, community organizations, and development partners are all contributing to these results. Some countries have been able to partially alleviate this system or this issue rather by by introducing approaches like program budgeting that allow for better alignment across ministries on, on specific programmatic results. Um, but even program budgets are rarely able to capture all the resources that um, contribute to those outcomes across, you know, the various sources of funding. Um, another issue I'd note is that to really understand the impact of spending, you also need to have timely, comprehensive, reliable data on service delivery. And, and this is a big challenge, right? It's expensive to collect data. And, and many countries really have a hard time collecting this sort of service delivery data on a regular basis. Um, and what they do collect, um, they may not be willing to release if it's not reflecting positively on the government. Um, so there, there are issues there as well. Yeah, it seems like there's quite a few different layers of, of obligation uh, in terms of, you know, reporting on, on how money is used and what impact it's having. You know, the USAID is responsible to Congress and, you know, delivery partners are responsible uh, to you. And I guess each of those layers kind of adds in its own challenges uh, and, and frictions. Um, again, Mark, I, I guess a similar question to what I asked you at first. Um, you know, there's a lot of different organizations fulfilling a, a similar role to, to USAID, uh, and all of them have this same challenge of reporting on how the money is used uh, to, to those that fund them and, and gathering information uh, from their delivery partners uh, on, on how the money is used. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, is, is USAID's approach uh, like a standard one or are there, I guess there's probably different metrics that everyone uses, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think the, I think the commonality probably goes to what Lisa said in terms of trying to evaluate causality because I'm spending a dollar for a purpose. 
And I ultimately want that dollar to lead to the highest relative impact and outcome that I can actually achieve. Uh, and I do that evaluation because I'm also looking to try and make continual improvements in that, whether that's in, you know, administrative efficiency, whether that's in allocative efficiency. But what Janine mentioned is that we're also doing that across this incredibly complicated and complex web of service providers, whether it's NGOs, whether it's, you know, direct government departments, whether it's, whether it's, you know, not, not for profits, whether it's for profit entities and so on. And really what we've got there is we've got an integration challenge in terms of being able to say, okay, so this activity we think led to that outcome. And how can I in real time, or at least what, what, what amounts to real time kind of effectively, how can I get that feedback loop initiated so that I'm not, you know, assessing this causality well in, well in arrears? I want that information as effectively and as currently as I, as I possibly can. And again, in part, this is an information management, in part, uh, challenge, in part, it's a design challenge and so forth. Um, but again, these are the, uh, the, 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 this is the next generation of PFM capability that governments and international agencies and so forth are trying to create, undoubtedly. Yeah, I, I can imagine that issue of getting timely, comprehensive and reliable data uh, to the people that are going to use the data to, to analyze and make policy decisions is, uh, is a very, a very difficult challenge. Um, Lisa, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about your experiences, uh, in trying to improve that, that process, uh, in, in the health programs that you've implemented on the ground. Yeah, absolutely, Lewis. Thanks. I, you know, I think that this question of, um, building systems or strengthening systems so that policymakers can use the best possible data, information, and evidence to make informed decisions about resource allocation is, is really just critical. Um, and, and it's something that in the health sector across our bureau, we're working to do through strengthening um, data and information systems in a way that is sustainable, but also that's, that's equitable. And so, um, you know, to facilitate um, more rapid and timely receipt of information for stakeholders, including government, but also more detailed information, um, we're working to advance the use of digital health technologies um, so that systems can be interoperable um, and more efficient for users, but then also to um, work on elements of building workforce capacity to successfully manage those systems, um, and then ultimately to make these kinds of informed decisions so that priority setting can really be linked more effectively to budget execution and so that we can see, you know, really more credible budgets in the health sector um, at the country level. Um, and I think as part of that process, you know, as we move towards using national systems for data reporting, we see data governance as really critical. And so country teams, you know, working with partner governments to develop um, strong national data governance policies that, again, allow for kind of appropriate data sharing um, across stakeholders. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. I We've been looking at, uh, you know, data governance infrastructure in, in central banks recently, and 
uh, it's been incredible to see that so many were just, it was just organic, you know, like uh, each department would collect their own information, sometimes information that was already being collected elsewhere and not stored in a format that other people are able to use. And I, I can only imagine this, uh, you know, that, that's within the central bank, but I imagine across governments, there have been all sorts of problems like this. Um, I guess on on that point, you know, if you're if you're looking to work on the ground in countries, what are the the technical and institutional prerequisites that that need to be in place for for you guys to operate? So maybe I'll kick off with a, a sort of general observation and and punt over to Lisa for some specifics on on work in one of our countries. Um, but but I'll say one of the issues that that we've seen is um, the, the challenges associated with a lot of the legacy systems um, that, that have made it hard to move to a more results-oriented or payment-for-results type system. Um, and a lot of times this has to do with interoperability challenges, whether it's between national and local level systems um, or whether it's within a national system, even between the core part of the FMIS that works on on. The, the general ledger accounting system and payroll systems, for example. Um, both of these systems need not only to be able to generate um, disaggregated expenditure data um, on a geographic basis, for example, or a programmatic basis, um, you know, hopefully that geographic basis is disaggregated enough to be able to get to that like frontline service delivery unit level. Um, but you need to understand and be able to have both of those systems speak to each other with respect to programmatic details. And oftentimes um, there are rigidities in how those systems are set up that can make it difficult to do that. Um, increasingly, more and more of, of the countries where we work, the, the IFMIS systems are able to do this. Um, but, but we see in particular that payroll systems tend to have more of a challenge to be able to disaggregate and align to, to a lower level of specificity. Um, but, but that said, I think we've seen some real cases of, of success of, of being able to modify, build, um, integrate these, these sorts of systems. And, and I think Lisa has a really practical example that she can share. Yeah, thanks, Janine. Um, and, and just to um, kind of drill down into one country, um, I think the experience that Tanzania um, has had over the past several years really highlights how the government with USAID support was able to kind of modernize, modernize as, as Janine said, these kind of historical um, legacy systems. And so over the past seven or so years, Tanzania has just really made incredible strides in its public sector systems for, for budgeting and for accounting. Um, and so previously, the system at the decentralized local government authority or LGA level for planning and budgeting, um, but also expenditure monitoring and reporting, it was a standalone desktop application, and it had different versions in different sectors. It didn't include service providers or service outputs, and it couldn't transfer, make, transfer information across levels of government. Um, and so with USAID support, the planning, budgeting, and reporting system called PlanRep, it was upgraded. Um, so it's now web-based. It's decentralized to health facilities, but also to schools and, and villages, um, it's interoperable with several of the government of Tanzania's systems for financial reporting and accounting as well. Um, and so then for resource tracking and financial management, 
USAID supported the development of additional systems, um, the Facility Financial Reporting and Accounting System, or FARS, um, which is interoperable with plan rep and, and central government systems. And, you know, to the prior question about evaluating the impact, work was done to assess the efficiency gains resulting from these modernizations of these information systems. Um, and there's really some remarkable results. So there was a, a cost savings of up to 53% um, for that planning and budgeting process. Um, a time savings for the for the same process from 87 days down to eight days, um, and then an improved quality of the information that's um, coming up from the community facility and, and LGA levels. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, cost savings of the order of 53%. I think people uh, are are quite surprised to to learn just how costly and how time consuming, you know, suboptimal PFM processes can be, and just what just the scale of the the savings that can be made there. Um, so, and I just want to come back on the point that you mentioned about the improvement of the quality of the information at the local authority level. Um, do you have any examples of situations where better, either more timely or more granular information have been used to, you know, formulate different policy or redirect funds in a more efficient way, perhaps? So, Lewis, thanks for the question. I mean, I think this is really kind of where the the rubber meets the road in terms of how we can um, really realize the benefits of of PFM reform in in a very concrete way. Um, And so just as as a couple of examples, um, we saw in um, in Kenya that the implement, implementation of program-based budgeting at the county level really helped to inform the priorities that county-level governments were able to um, make for their health sectors um, and, and ensure that those priorities really were informed by the data and the information that the PFM systems were generating. And this goes back to Janine's point earlier about you know, the, the value of, of implementing program-based budgeting, which can take um, a long time. It's, it's not a quick process, but I think that particularly in the health sector where we really are trying to implement against results and really achieve outcomes that this type of um, movement from line item budgeting to program-based budgeting can be very beneficial. So um, that's just one example from Kenya. Um, and I think we've seen examples in other regions um, in Asia, I can think of the Philippines and PFM reforms that where they actually um, bypassed the um, kind of uh, central um, or kind of regional levels of government to ensure that um, resources were being transitioned down to uh, decentralized levels much more quickly, enabled more timely um, service delivery. Um, but then, of course, they had to kind of make some adjustments um, later on down th- the line to ensure that there was transparency um, across the system. And I might be able to add an example of um, of where this has also played out in terms of the budget execution side of things and how it can result in in sort of more informed decision making in that space. And here I'd point to some of our experience um, working in the area of um, e-procurement, so introducing digital systems for for the 
the management of government purchasing and contract management. Um, we've done substantial work on this in a number of countries, one of which is Kosovo. And there, there was a very intentional focus on um, not only having a very complete system that went every the entire process of, of procurement, all the way from procurement planning through contract management amendments, et cetera, um, but also to have the data be transparent by default. Um, and, and so I think these integrated systems that are able to track down to the local level um, are particularly powerful when you can use that data um, for accountability purposes. And in this case of Kosovo, um, because the data was made um, transparent by default, it was available on an external website with an API. Um, civil society activists and, and the the media were able to leverage this data to do some really granular analysis to look at the municipal level, you know, what are varying levels of integrity around procurement um, and, and how are different municipalities performing with respect to that. And that's important in and of itself, but it's also important um, for integrity um, and accountability purposes and to inform citizen decision making. So we actually saw that in um, jurisdictions where um, the public officials were performing better in terms of, you know, procurement integrity, this was something that was actively reported on in the press. Um, those, those politicians were able, were more likely to be uh, elected to office that following um, round of elections. So, so there are real outcomes, there are real um, incentives that are created by having these integrated systems that have meaningful data um, that that actors within a governance system can can leverage for for a lot of um, really positive purposes. Janine, I might just add on that because I think you, you've you've just hit on a on a really powerful point that it isn't just about administrative efficiency, it isn't just about the exchange of information, it is about potentially the positive impact that facilitating such innovation can have on democracy itself, and ultimately, you know, everybody who's involved in one form or another of public management is trying to serve the interests of the people who are affected by delivery of public policy, by by public administration and so on. And that that to me is just a really powerful example of where the world can move. Yeah, absolutely. I think um and and you know helping with that on on a number of levels you know the integrity and accountability but also as as lisa was saying the uh having accurate information available to policymakers and and improving the way money is spent for the public good as well i think uh yeah people don't necessarily consider um you know the information management end of, of public finances as as something that can uh, be as important for policy formulation as it is. But uh, yeah, looking on the ground in places like Tanzania and uh, the, I think you mentioned the Philippines as well, it's uh, really great to see. Yeah, I wanted to just pick up on a point Janine made about uh, legacy systems and interoperability there, uh, and I'd be interested to get your perspective on that as well, Mark. I think. Uh, you know, it, from our uh, work talking with policymakers in various branches of government around the world, this seems to be an extremely widespread problem. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience of, of the challenges of dealing with, in, you know, non-interoperable legacy systems or maybe some some solutions, you know, overlays that can kind of cut through some of the problems there? Well, it is a distinct challenge, isn't it? And it it, it really represents itself in a couple of different ways. The first one is 
there's a choice about in the replacement of legacy systems, do you actually, you know, have to think about redesigning some other kind of centralized or coordinated or integrated system so that you are essentially in a, in a very fundamental way moving off of legacy systems onto some newly designed but still quite centralized type system. And there are, you know, lots of considerations to, to be made in that. One of, one of the things that we have seen emerge in the relatively recent past is that there is a second option as well. Uh, and that is, well, wait a minute. Do we actually have to kind of, you know, rip and replace the legacy systems? Or in fact, can we come in over the top and build an integrating layer through, for instance, the use of you know, Lisa mentioned a lot of different types of digital technology. This is, this is obviously the future of the world. It's the current of the world. Um, you know, can we, can we build an integrating layer that allows us to, to in, in a, in a digital way, connect the legacy systems without actually having necessarily to replace all of those legacy systems? And I think that the answer right now is yes. And so by the use of things like smart contracts, by the use of things like, um, you know, Janine mentioned a APIs, so sort of web-based, web cloud and web-based solutions that draw on legacy systems, but then create an integrated layer. Well, can that integrated layer actually help to accelerate our desire to get new information, better access to the underlying data, and to serve up a better understanding of what's actually going on. Why? So that we can get back to this point that we want not just to be able to control money, but actually we want it to uh, lead to the outcomes that in fact have been designed and anticipated for it. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. I think the the idea of having to, you know, to replace uh, legacy systems is a big hurdle for for a lot of institutions. You know, they've got established expertise uh, there, and you know, retraining the change management, the procurement process for developing all that. These are very big barriers to, to institutional change. So, uh, something that that can kind of cut through that without uh, without such a, a complex process is a, is a very valuable contribution there. Excellent. Well, I think we'll leave it there. This is a really fascinating topic and there's uh, much, much more to be said on it. Um, and we'll be continuing to, to say some of those things in future podcasts and roundtables and reports on this topic uh, coming up. So do keep an eye on the OnFIF website, the DMI page there for more information about what's coming. And I'd like to thank my fantastic guests for joining me today. It's been really insightful. Thank you, Janine. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful being here and, and thanks for provoking this discussion and giving us a chance to, to geek out a little bit about PFM and the results. Oh, our pleasure. And uh, thank you, Lisa. Lewis, thanks so much for the invitation. It's just been a pleasure and um, such an interesting conversation to, to talk about kind of these big picture issues and then to drill down at the, at the sector level as well. Thanks so much. Our pleasure. Thanks again. And Mark. Well, thank you. And thank you also to Lisa and Janine. I think it was a fantastic conversation. As Janine just said, it's, it's always fun to kind of geek out on these sorts of issues, but they are central to the very delivery of public programming everywhere in the world. And so they're very, very important. Thank you.
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a really important message to end on. I think it'll be good for our audience to to hear some of the technical detail that you guys were, were able to offer. And I think, yeah, it'll have been very informative um, for everyone. So thanks again uh, to all my guests. Uh, thank you to the audience for listening. Uh, do check out our other podcasts. We're available on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and on demand on our website. And do look on the website for details of the DMI Symposium, uh, which is being held on May 10th and 11th. A lot of really interesting uh, topics to discuss there. Very interesting speakers. Uh, do check it out. Also got reports, commentaries, uh, another podcast available on the website. And do check out our other social media as well. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth Podcast.